Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We've come to our last Sunday in the Advent season, and we've considered several themes, several Advent themes that mark this unique time in the church calendar. And our focus has been on several perspectives of Jesus' coming. His coming into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. His coming in the days of John the Baptist. His coming on the last day. But now, on this fourth Sunday, we turn our attention to the anticipation of his coming in flesh as a human baby. The manger is just a few days away. And we, the church, eagerly anticipate with Mary and with the whole world the salvation of God coming to us in the person of Christ as we rehearse, as we remember God's story, as we embody that story in our worship. What we have in the second half of our gospel reading today is a true Advent song. Perhaps the original Advent song. Perhaps the best Advent song. One that is inspired by the Holy Spirit and sung by Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it's this song, Mary's Magnificat, that's just Latin for magnify, that I'd like to focus on this morning. Because its contents are critical for us to to know in our heads, and for us to treasure in our hearts, like Mary did. But first, we see the context, the context of what Mary was getting at with her song, this song of praise to God. So Mary has taken off on this four-day journey on foot to visit her cousin, Elizabeth. She was fresh off this meeting with the angel Gabriel. Gabriel came to her bringing the world's most important news. Not just any good news, the world's most important news. He called her the favored one. He assured her that the Lord was with her. She was to bear a son in her womb, who she will call Jesus. He'll be the son of the Most High. He will sit on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom will have no end. Can you imagine an angel showing up to you and saying that? If that's not amazing enough, she will bear this child in her womb apart from the natural way that babies are normally conceived. She will be a virgin. That which is conceived in her will not be from any man, but will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And Mary, being this pious, faithful Jewish woman, knew exactly what Gabriel was getting at. She took his meaning. You know, in those days, Jewish women were well acquainted with the writings of the Old Testament. They were well acquainted with God's promises to send the Messiah, to save, to redeem them. Therefore, get this, they considered it a curse whenever their womb was closed or whenever they were barren. Why? Why would they consider that a curse? Because they would not potentially be able to bring forth the Messiah. So to have your womb buried would have been a curse indeed. So when Mary was brought this news, she was 
She was overwhelmed, and rightfully so. She was overwhelmed. This tremendous privilege that she's been given, this amazing gift that every Jewish woman would have loved to receive. You know that song, Mary, Did You Know? That, that song that Christians argue about every year right around this time? Well, you heard it here first. She did know. She did know. She knew that the child that she bore in her womb was to be the Savior of the world. Because she knew the scriptures. And because she trusted God's word that came to her through that angel. And so she takes off to Elizabeth's house. And when she gets there, we see this other mind-blowing moment. We talked about we talked about pregnancy announcements earlier in Bible study. And it's just Whenever someone gets that news, you just want to share it with everyone. You want to share it with the world. You don't care who, whenever Corey was pregnant with Nora, um, you know, I, and she shared the news with me. It just so happened that my mother-in-law was in town, and so so they could be at the house and I could step away for a bit. because And we were trying to keep the news secret from my mother-in-law. So I had to get out. I had to go somewhere. I had to go somewhere, so I went over to Barrow, and I told just about everyone at the brewery. What my wife had told me. So you gotta go somewhere, you gotta share it, you gotta get it off your chest, right? So she takes off to Elizabeth's house. And as Mary greets Elizabeth, this is amazing. Baby John the Baptist, who's in the womb, leaps. That same guy, John the Baptist, who we've been hearing about the past two weeks, that guy that eats locusts in the wilderness and wears camel hair and all this stuff. That guy, he is in his mom's womb, Elizabeth, and he leaps. Leaps for joy in the womb. And more than that, Elizabeth is also filled with the Holy Spirit as they are both standing in the presence of their Savior. That Savior who is in Mary's womb. And what this shows us, this is a sermon for another time, but what this shows us is that the work of God's Spirit is not limited by age. It's not limited by gender or by socioeconomic status. God's Holy Spirit is poured out for all people according to God's will, who blesses motherhood, who blesses children, and uses both in the plan of his salvation. So important is motherhood and children to God and to his heart that he uses them for his plan of salvation. I could go on about that. Don't get me started. But Elizabeth knows this too. Elizabeth knows what's going on with Mary. She's been she's given this kind of revelation from heaven, so to speak. She knows it so well, she believes it so much that our text today says she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Both women know that it is the Son of God who resides in Mary's womb, and it's on account of him that they are blessed. It's on account of him that they are blessed. It's on account of him that all the nations would be blessed as God promised Abraham so long ago that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Therefore, Mary responds properly. She responds appropriately to the occasion. There's only one thing that she can do. There's only one thing that's appropriate. She sings. She sings God's word. And what an amazing song it is. It's, 
It's one that is still regularly sung in the church's liturgy and worship. It cites 13 different lines from the Old Testament, including the Song of Hannah in 1 Samuel. And as I said before, she was so acquainted and familiar with the Old Testament scriptures that it just flowed freely from her, almost involuntarily. That God's word was just brought to her lips. And her song speaks of the reign of God in Christ, the reign of God which will upend our expectations, which will do things that we've never expected, but ultimately give us cause for rejoicing. So there are three things that this song tells us that I'd like for you to consider today. The first thing it tells us is that God deals graciously with the humble and with the lowly. God deals graciously with the humble and lowly. Verses 51 through 53 says this. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. This has been God's MO since the beginning. This is how God goes about things, and this is how he's been doing it since the beginning of creation. And it's this very important theme in the book of Luke. God delights in exalting the humble and bringing down the rich and proud. He uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He uses that which is least in the eyes of the world for his glorious purposes. That's how God does. For example, in Jesus' ministry, he brought good news to the poor while also providing for their bodily needs in his healings and miracles and what have you. And this was a precursor to the coming reign of God when Christ returns on the last day. That was just a preview. That was a thumbnail. Something of what it was going to be like, what it will be like. Those who find themselves down and out, those who are down and out because the effects of sin, the effects of living in a sinful world, those who despair of their own righteousness, those who recognize their need for grace, for mercy, will ultimately be filled in Jesus Christ when he returns to the brim. And indeed, he does satisfy us with good things here and now, not just in eternity, but here and now. He satisfies us with good things, namely his righteousness. He gives to us his righteousness, which, by the way, we will eat and drink in his body and blood here in just a few moments. So if God gives us what we need through this child that's in Mary's womb, if he does indeed give us what we need, then why do so many reject this good news of great joy, this salvation that is so freely given in the personal work of Jesus? Why do so many reject this? One commentator said this. He said, it was a salvation that the great ones of the earth would not welcome. There was dynamite within it, says the commentator. 
He was to challenge the selfish powers of this earth and exalt those of low degree. There was dynamite within this salvation. In other words, God's purpose in Christ is to raise up those broken by the effects of sin, to raise up those who are down and out, those who despair of their own righteousness, and to bring down the lofty and the proud, those who lean on their own righteousness for their security and for their identity. The salvation both subverts and far exceeds our expectations. It's nothing that you and I could have ever thought of. And Mary herself, she's an example of this. She's a poor, lowly Jewish maiden. This poor, lowly Jewish maiden who is made the Theotokos, the God-bearer. She's given that privilege, not on account of her being without sin. She needed a Savior just like you and me. It was on account of God, his mercy. He is the one who looks upon our humble estate with grace and favor. He's the one who does that. And this is what God delights to do. He loves it. This is what God loves to do. He loves doing the unexpected. He loves subverting our expectations. He loves blowing our minds. And the great example of this, of course, is in the cross, where Jesus became the least, the lowliest, to bring down the wisdom of this world. The Apostle Paul says that the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to this world. God loves subverting our expectations. The second thing this hymn tells us is that God's work through Mary's child is the fulfillment of something promised long ago. This was promised a long time ago. In verse 50, she says, His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And in verses uh, 54 through 55, she says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The fact that God's mercy extends across the generations indicates that he has been at work for the redemption of mankind since the moment that we fell in the garden. He's been at work to save you since the beginning. And Jesus was to be the, the fulfillment of every promise that God had made to the Israelites. Not just to the Israelites, but to the nations as well, as he promised Abraham. In 2 Corinthians 1, chapter 20, or sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says this, All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All of his promises throughout ancient history all come together and converge in this child that's in Mary's womb. And Mary sings because she gets to play this unique part in God's redemptive plan. She, she has that privilege, not because of anything that she had done, but strictly on account of God's goodness and grace. One commentator, Arthur Just, he says this. He says, for the duration of Mary's pregnancy... She becomes the new tabernacle. She becomes the new tabernacle where the presence of God dwells in human flesh. 
She is the new tabernacle. He goes on. He says, the seed of the first woman, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is now in the womb of Mary. The births in all the generations recorded in the genealogies of Genesis have found their fulfillment in Jesus. In all of the promises of God are in someone like that, my son. Think about it. That's what God delights to do. He subverts our expectations. He brings his salvation through one such as that. And this was God's plan from the get-go, and therefore why Christmas is a big deal. It's all the ancient promises of God coming to fulfillment in Jesus who comes as a baby, meek and mild, but Jesus who will go to the cross for your sins and mine. That's what Christmas is about. And this brings us to the last thing to consider about what this hymn tells us. It tells us that the promise of Mary's child leads to great rejoicing. It leads to great rejoicing. Notice the opening lines, those famous ones that you probably have memorized. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Martin Luther noted that in this passage, Mary rejoices more in God than in the gifts that he gives. Many people delight in their salvation much more in their Savior, in the gift more than in the giver, in the creature rather than in the creator. But not so with Mary. She shows us how it's done. She's a tremendous example for us. She delights in her Savior. She delights in the gift giver. Now, how can we look at the gift of Christ who comes to us on Christmas? How can we look at Christ who grows up under the law for us? How can we look at Christ who is crucified and buried for us, who is bodily raised for us, who will return for us? How can we look at those things and not magnify the Lord? How can we not rejoice in him who brings such great blessing? What does it mean to be blessed? This passage sure uses that word a lot. We do. We use that word a lot. We see that word blessed in hashtags. We see it in, um, in Christian craft stores and things like this. We see it on coffee cups and t-shirts, hashtag blessed. Now, I suspect that our culture has cheapened that word somewhat. But what does it mean in the biblical sense to be blessed? Why does Elizabeth call Mary blessed? Why does Mary call herself blessed? Arthur Just says this. He says, Mary is blessed because of the presence of Christ in her. Just as the church is blessed because Christ dwells in her. Mary is blessed because of the presence of Christ in her, just as the church is blessed because Christ dwells in her. Consider that the glory of God once dwelt in the tabernacle. Then the glory of God dwelt in the temple. Then the glory of God dwelt in Mary's womb. And now it dwells in the church as Christ delights to be with us. Poor miserable sinners like us, he wants to be with us. And he comes to us in his word and in his sacraments. And though he is hidden to our eyes, and though we can't see him, he is very much present right now. 
And he's using the lowly things of this world. He's using a sinful preacher. He's using words on a page. He's using water. He's using bread and wine to raise up the lowly and to bring down the proud. And through these, he forgives us our sins. And he changes us from being the hungry, the poor, the despised of the world, and he raises us up so that we are the greatest in the kingdom. That's what it means to be blessed. And you and I, my friends, we share in that same blessing that Mary sang about on that day so long ago. That same blessing that we will celebrate here in a few short days. He who testifies to these things says this. He says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.